listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Thank you, Jordan. Good morning, y'all. Peace be with you. I think I'm on. Okay. Well, my name is Peyton. I'm a lay elder here at Sojourn Montrose. If you're wondering what I'm doing up here, it has been a while since I've preached. Um, So I'm grateful for the opportunity and excited to keep walking through the book of Hebrews with you all. Uh, Just want to remind you, lay elder means I don't get paid. So just keep in mind you get what you pay for. All right, so we've been going through this greater than series in the book of Hebrews. We've seen so far how Jesus is greater than angels, how he's greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, and last week, how he's greater than Aaron and is himself our great high priest. Today, the topic we're going to discuss is how Jesus is greater than bulls and goats. In other words, Jesus' atoning blood, his death on the cross, is greater than the atoning blood that was shed by the animals sacrificed in the Old Covenant temple system. But before we dive in, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that you've revealed to us, your word, um, that you've softened our hearts to it. It is indeed mysterious and complex, but by your spirit, we are able to glean uh, truth from it, truth about you, beautiful truth. Would you help us to do that today by your spirit? Um, Would you enable me to speak clearly, concisely, and compellingly to the saints gathered in this room? We rely on you and your spirit to do this work, God, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so this text, we're going to compare elements of the old covenant and the new covenant. Before we go into depth there, I think it's going to be helpful for us to set up a little bit of an illustration to kind of help us understand the interplay between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So, imagine a masterpiece painting, something like Mona Lisa or The Starry Night. Well, for each of these finished works, there's often an initial sketch or a drawing done in pencil that kind of frames out how the painting is going to look. If you've ever seen one of these drawings, you'll notice it's very similar to the painting itself. It has the same shape, the same form. And as you look at a drawing, you can even envision how the final product is going to look. It's suggestive, but it's obviously not the final work. The drawing functions like a prototype or a template for the painting. It is a step along the way in a cohesive process to creating a painting. Well, in many ways, we can think of God's progressive plan of salvation in this same way. There's one cohesive and comprehensive covenant of grace that extends from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And as we read the Old Testament, we see it being revealed progressively through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses and David. We call that the Old Covenant. But we see in the New Testament that the covenant of grace is fulfilled ultimately and finally in Christ with the new covenant. So as we use that language today of new covenant and old covenant, we shouldn't think of them as two separate and distinct works. They're actually elements of one grand cohesive covenant of grace, which is finalized in Christ. There's 
a lot of nuance there. And actually, next week, we're going to address specifically Old Covenant and New Covenant. Uh, but hopefully, for our purposes today, uh, that illustration will kind of help frame it out a little bit for us. So let's turn to the text. Um, we read first verses 1 through 4, and I'll reread them for us here. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, we see here that the author refers to the old covenant practices, the sacrifices, the temple sacrifices, as the law. And he says that they're a shadow of good things to come. And then he kind of describes specifically how and why those good things to come are indeed greater than the law that preceded them. How the sacrifice of Christ is greater than the sacrifice of animals. So if we look, one of the ways we'll see this is true uh, is the effectiveness of the sacrifice, the effectiveness. The writer says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, atonement was not fully realized by the blood of the old covenant sacrifices. But the blood of Christ is fully effective in paying for sin. His blood truly, and in a literal cosmic sense, fully, finally, and forever does pay for sin. We also see that the law demands sacrifices to be made every year. This, in and of itself, suggests a kind of limitation to their effectiveness. But for us, of the New Covenant, we claim a single sacrifice that's been offered for all time. Once for all. One and done. No future upgrades or modifications necessary. So we can rest in the finished work of Christ. There's no need for further supplemental atonement. Not from us, not from anybody else. We don't need to perform any rituals of self-flagellation or tearful confessions in order to approach God or to cleanse ourselves. No, the blood of Christ has already done that. Once for all. The writer also points out that in these annual sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins. But when we look at the blood of Christ, we're not reminded primarily of our sins, but of our forgiveness. All of our sins are paid for in this one historic act of his death. Jesus' blood pleads an eternal word of atonement for us. The writer also, uh, sorry, skipping down. The writer uh, also kind of mentions in a roundabout way, and as we read scripture more comprehensively throughout the New Testament, it's really clear um, this other element that's kind of different between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant sacrificial systems, okay? So um, in the law and the Old Testament sacrifice system, it was Israel-centric. It was focused on the nation of Israel. And yeah, there, there were these invitations. You can find them in the Old Testament. There were invitations for foreigners to come worship, to come worship Yahweh. There were uh, prophetic hints at Gentiles being grafted in to the family of God. But primarily, the Old Covenant was revealed to and focused on the nation of Israel. But when the blood of Christ is spilled, 
the inclusivity of God's covenant of grace is fully realized. Fully realized. The atonement of the new covenant is intended to be spread far and wide to every tribe, tongue, and nation. The church is called to reach all people with the gospel message. So let's zoom out here, kind of summarize some of these thoughts. The old covenant system of animal sacrifices was good. It was instituted by God. It was part of his plan. It's worthy of our attention in our study. As we study it, we can see God pointing his covenant people towards his saving grace and his steadfast love. We can also see this framework being built that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But despite the inherent beauty and awe and wonder and glory of the old covenant, it's now considered a shadow, a placeholder, like a sketch or a drawing. But Christ is the finished masterpiece. His sacrifice is perfect, full, greater than the old covenant sacrifices, as much better as the blood of the God-man is more perfect than the blood of mere animals, which is to say it's infinitely better. I think here of Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished, he says, as he takes his last breath. It's done, over, nothing more. There's nothing new to add. And the curtain torn in two, the veil to the innermost holy place of the temple, torn in two at the consummation of his sacrifice. This clearly demonstrates the end of the temple sacrifice system and the institution of something new, something final, complete, and full. It's full in its depth. All of our sins, no matter how egregious they are, are paid for. It's full in its breadth. The gospel's for all people. And it's full in its eternality, once for all. So in Jesus, we have an atonement that is for all sin, for all people, and for all time. And that is certainly worth celebrating, right? Come on, I know y'all got an extra hour of sleep. Amen. <laughs> all right, so as we go further in this text, we're going to see how this full atonement that we have in the blood of Christ enables us to have a full assurance of our salvation, a full atonement leading to a full assurance. Let's skip down to verses 19 through 22. He writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Church, how great a confidence we have when we claim this for ourselves. When we claim the blood of Christ for ourselves, what a great confidence we can have. How amazing is God's grace. He invites us to commune with him in this very intimate way. He invites us, us, we know ourselves, right? We're fickle, we're insecure, we're weak. Let's face it, pretty stubborn too. He invites us to enter the holy place, to commune with him, the creator of the universe, the creator of the universe. Don't miss the radical grace that's on display here. Radical grace. Church, we can approach God without pretense or ceremony. We can approach him just however we are. 
any way, any time, with any problem, with any question. Because of the perfection of Jesus, we can come to God with our imperfection. Because of Jesus' atonement, we can come to God even when we're laden with sin, fear, and doubt. Because of the finality and the sufficiency of Christ's work, we can approach God like needy children. That's what we are. We are needy children. We need a loving Father. And we have one. We are needy children, and we are secure sons and daughters. Secure sons and daughters in the family of God. We belong fully, as much as Jesus belongs, because we're in Christ. All of the imperfections that we grew up with in our earthly families, and there are some, aren't there? All of the insecurities that we grew up with that inflict us today, the lies, am I really loved? (laughs) This could be a while. Okay, maybe not. Stay safe out there. Let me say this again. We all grew up with earthly families that were imperfect. We are all afflicted in some ways by the imperfections that we grew up with. We all have these insecurities. Am I really loved? Is he really proud of me? Do they really care? All of these questions, all of these insecurities have their answer in Jesus. Yes, we know without a doubt that he loves us. Yes, we know that he is proud of us. Yes, we know that he deeply cares for us. That's good news. Let your hearts be captivated by this truth. Hold on to it. Abide in it. Dwell in it. Meditate on it. Treat it like the precious treasure that it is. You're certainly going to need it in the days to come. Now, before we go on, I do want to draw your attention to one more element of this passage. The phrase sprinkled clean and washed with pure water should make us think about baptism. And one of the primary benefits of baptism is the assurance that it offers us as we think back on our own baptisms. There's an implied call here to do that, to remember our baptisms. And I just want to point that out before we go on and encourage you all to do that. Reflect on your baptisms often. As you reflect on your baptisms, be reminded of God's covenant promises to you, secured by the blood of Christ. Now we'll move on uh, to verses 23 through 29. The author here kind of offers some application for us. He reads, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. So the author here offers some encouragement to stand firm in Christ, coupled with a clear and very sober warning. The encouragement 
is we have this perfect hope in the salvation of Christ. Hold fast, do not waver. That phrase, hold fast, brings up imagery of a drowning man clutching a life preserver. That's how we should cling to Christ. He is our only hope in the storm-tossed waters. Do not let go. Do not think that you can make the shore on your own. Cling to him. And then there's a warning, which I'll summarize like this. If you neglect this perfect salvation, you will surely not be spared in the day of judgment. We can put our hope in the righteousness of Christ and be spared, or we can face judgment alone, standing on our own righteousness. We can cling to the life preserver and be saved, or we can sink to the depths as we flail about seeking righteousness by our own means. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be caught standing on my own righteousness. I'm just not good enough. But Jesus is. Thank God. If you are depending on your own moral righteousness as you stand before God, the author offers this warning in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a sober warning, isn't it? It's a hard truth to accept in our age of moral relativism, isn't it? I don't want to discount that. It is a sober truth and it is hard. But I do want to point out here that this warning is offered alongside encouragement and hope. That's similar to how these warnings are presented elsewhere in Scripture. God's pending judgment is often presented alongside the beauty and security of God's saving grace. If this makes you, this passage makes you a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit squirmy, that's okay. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, if you are trusting in his blood for your atonement, then you are secure. You have nothing to worry about. That is the crux of this passage. If you are in Christ, you are secure. It's not intended to make you doubt your salvation. So while there, it is certainly a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you are apart from Christ, it's actually a blessing for those of us who have been born again into the living hope that is Christ. And if you're struggling with doubt, if you're wondering where you stand with God, if you're not sure, if maybe you've called yourself a Christian your whole life, but you're still not quite sure, don't face these questions alone. You don't have to face these questions. You don't have to face your doubt alone. Come talk to your elders. Come talk to your parish leaders. We want to walk through this with you. You don't have to figure it out all by yourself. And you shouldn't. This leads us to our next point. If we look again at this section of text, we'll see that this call to stand firm in the truth is accompanied by a method through which we can do so. In other words, there's a what to do and a how to do it. The what, stand firm in your faith, cling to it. The how, stir up one another to good works. Do not neglect to meet together and encourage one another. Do you hear a theme in this? The way that we stand firm is in the context of community. 
We stand firm together. What the author is saying here is that we need each other. We need each other. We've said this from the pulpit time and time again, but if you don't want to take our word for it, here's an explicit command from Scripture. Do not neglect to meet together. Gather together with the saints. On Sundays, like you're doing now, gather with the saints at your parish, at renewal group, at prayer gatherings. Go to the football watch party, the camping trip, the knitting club, the recovery group. Look, we just can't endure without the help of our brothers and sisters. Life is hard. The Bible tells us to expect suffering. Suffering in the Bible is presented like a spiritual discipline. It's part of our formation. So we should expect it. And then on top of that, our hearts and the hearts of our brothers and sisters are under attack from the enemy, Satan, from the world around us and by the temptations of our flesh. How can we endure? Well, we can't. Not if we act alone. Not if we act by our own power. But when we gather together, Christ is here. He's with us right now. When we gather together, we have the opportunity for our faith and our defenses against the lies of the enemy to be replenished. We have the opportunity to be regrounded in the truth and beauty of the gospel as we point each other back to Christ. Back to Christ. We have the opportunity to live out the very words of this passage, stirring one another up to love and good works and encouraging each other. We can't persevere through all the trials of this life alone. We need each other. You need your brothers and sisters in this room. That's a humbling reality, isn't it? It's also true that your brothers and sisters need you. All of us, each and every one of us, are invaluable, irreplaceable parts of this covenant family. We all have gifts to share with one another. We all are being equipped to build one another up. That's how God has designed the church. So do you think about gathering together like this? Do you think about gathering together like our souls depend on it? If we can reframe our thinking about community this way, we'll move from a consumer mindset where we're focused on our own desires and preferences towards a covenant mindset. Acknowledging, I need these people and they need me. We belong to one another. That's a covenant mindset. That's what the scripture calls us towards. And the last thing I'll say is this. While we're made for community, while we need, deeply need it, we also have to acknowledge that the world around us is made of the same stuff that we are, and they need it too. What better way to be an image of the love that we have in Christ than to show that same love to one another and invite our neighbors in to join us? Invite our neighbors in who are afflicted by the same sin that we are, who, like us, are lonely, insecure, anxious, depressed, addicted, abused. Invite those neighbors into a secure and forever home with God and his people. As we do this, 
As we invite outsiders in, we get to see their souls transformed from a place of fear and condemnation to a place of faith and preservation. What a privilege. What a joy. What a beautiful life that God has called us to. Church, let's help each other stand firm in this. Let's help each other put gospel love on display by being steadfast and consistent encouragers in this family. Let's remind each other that, as verse 39 puts it, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I want you guys to say this with me. Verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Once more. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. Let's pray.